today we're going to cover 21 chapters of an entire book in one sermon. So we'll see how that goes, but I'm really excited to actually dive into the book of Judges. I know I told you to turn to Deuteronomy, but we'll have an opportunity. I'm here to cover Judges as the sequel to the book of Joshua that we have just covered. So we've got a, a lot of work to do, so please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. As you're turning, would you please stand um, as we read God's word? We want to honor the reading of his word. We're going to read actually all of Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 8. So Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that is the fifth book in from the front, pretty early on. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here is what God's word says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. 
The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not cover, covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you. And to do you good in the end, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Let's pray to this covenant-keeping God. Lord, this morning we are so grateful for the work that you are doing. We're, we're rejoicing with the baptisms of Andrea and Madeline and Drake. Lord, we, we thank you for what you've done in their lives. We thank you for how you're using this church in this neighborhood, in our neighborhoods, um, and in our support of missions and missionaries around the world. God, we pray that you would guide us into all truth this morning, that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we're tired Keep us awake, keep us watchful. And Lord, help us to use both the time after uh, the service and our Sunday school hour and the time after to encourage one another, to love one another, and to be a church family. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
I opened up the uh, Orange County Register this morning and was greeted with um, some of the same bad news we've been seeing for a long time. Um, uh, an, a massive apartment building in Gaza uh, destroyed by a rocket from Israel. Uh, more rockets fired from Gaza into Israel. Um, read about uh, people in Porterville, California, who had to have uh, bottled water delivered to them because they turn on the faucet and there is no water. Um, I read about the Ebola virus spreading to more and more people in Nigeria and Liberia and other Western African nations. Um, we've seen ISIS uh, uh, execute an American uh, on the internet. We've seen uh, chaos ruling in so many places in the Middle East and Eastern Ukraine and Crimea and other places around the world that we don't even hear about. And this is normal. This is how it's been. And this is just a reflection of what sin has done to this world. Scratch that. What man has done to this world through his sin. And that's what we're going to see this morning in the book of Judges. Um, if you read the book of Judges and sit down like I did this week, and I, I open my Bible and then I put on the, uh, the, the iPod and just turned on Judges, read all the way through. It's a, it's a violent, immoral, debased, depraved book. It is filled with um, things that would make for uh, rated R movies. It is filled with things that frankly are depressing if we didn't have the rest of the scriptures. And so as we dive into an overview of the book of Judges, I do want to not get away from the fact that there are some difficult things to deal with in this book. There are some things that are very hard to read, um, hard to understand, hard to fathom. But lest we go in with a self-righteous, judgmental spirit, May we examine our own hearts and our own motivations, our own thoughts to remember what God has saved us out of and what God has saved us from. As just as he told the people of Israel that he had saved them from the house of slavery, so the Lord has saved us um, from the house of slavery to sin. And so this morning, I do want to dive into the book of Judges. I want to give you just some brief uh, background to the book and some things to help us maybe as we think about it in relation to the book of Joshua that we've been in since March. So this kind of puts the, the final closing comments on a series that we started way back in March. And I do want to um, briefly go through it. I would encourage you... Um, there's no way I'm going to be able to cover everything here, but I do want to point some things out to you to help you maybe even read it this week um, in your devotions. So uh, I just want to put up an outline. This three, the, the book is pretty clearly divided into three different sections. Uh, the first is chapters 1 through 3, verse 6, is the introduction. And unfortunately, it shows the downturn of Israel. They are faithless. They are faithless. So Israel is faithless. And um, this is kind of stepping back into the book of Joshua, kind of going back, doing a little review, and then moving forward in the timeline. Uh, the, the main chunk, the body of the book, uh, is from uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to the end of chapter 16, or the end of the story of Samson. And um, we call this the downward spiral. And in it, we see actually Yahweh's remarkable faithfulness and mercy. If you're not familiar with the term Yahweh, um, in your Bibles, when you see Lord in all caps, 
Um, that is translating a Hebrew word that we pronounce as best we can, Yahweh. And that is the covenant name of Israel's God, the God of the universe who revealed himself to Israel, saying, I am that I am. And so we see in that middle section um, how Yahweh is faithful and merciful to this people that are faithless toward him. And then there's a conclusion. The conclusion is the is very easily the most depressing part of the book. Um, the last several chapters, um, Anarchy in Search of Monarchy. And we see, uh, basically, one scholar said, a progressive deterioration throughout the book. So you start in chapter 1, and you read through chapter 21, you just see a, a, a progression of deterioration. Things fall apart, and it is, um, it is sad to see. Uh, the, the timeline of the Judges basically covers about a 300-year period connecting the time after Joshua dies to the time of Eli and Samuel in the book of 1 Samuel. And so there's about a 300-year period between 1350 B.C. and about 1050 B.C. that this period of the, the book of Judges covers. Traditionally, Jew, the Jews have said that um, Samuel wrote this book. And that's uh, a, probably a good guess, but we don't really know. Um, it's clear that it's been uh, uh, put together in such a way as to be a purposeful book, a unit in itself. Um, and it's been uh, organized well. Um, the question then becomes, why was it written? Um, what was the purpose? And it's, I don't think it's merely to have a record of what happened um, to get us from point A to point B. The writer of the book of Judges and the ultimate writer of the book of Judges, God, has a purpose for us. So sometimes I think we tend to see history as just a, a, a sequence of events. These guys fought these guys, and these guys fought these guys, and these guys fought these guys, and this guy killed this guy, and these guys, and, and it just kind of moves. Oh, hey, here we are. Okay, here we are. <laughs> what, what does that mean? What, what's the connection? And I think that as we look at the book of Judges, we see a purposeful um, organization. Some things are clearly not uh, elaborated in much detail, and then other things are, are really shown in much detail, chapter upon chapter, of things going on in certain judges' lives. And I think that it's very likely that the book was written early in the reign of King David, and it's to look back at a time when God's people fell away from the Lord. They incurred the curses that the Lord had said back in Deuteronomy would fall upon them if they were faithless, if they did not uphold the covenant that God had made to them. And I, I think that the point of the book is to show in shocking detail what happens to a society when they turn from the Lord? And in this instance, a very unique society, a society of the people of Israel that God, as we read in Deuteronomy, chose from among the rest of the nations. And so I think that the point of the book is to say to the current generation, whatever generation that was, wherever the author was, probably around the time of David, to look back at their ancestors, to look back at their history, and to see what happened when they broke the covenant, and to plead with them to keep the covenant. I think that that is what is going on here in the book of Judges. 
What you see as you go through uh, the middle portion of the book, you see six major judges and six minor judges. Just like as you go on the Old Testament, we have major prophets and minor prophets. That's not like varsity and junior varsity. Um, That just means that the major prophets have really big books and the minor prophets have really small books, okay? So um, if you ever heard that phrase and were wondering why some guys didn't make the team, they didn't make the cut or something, um, it's just referring to how large their books are. Same thing in the book of Judges. We have six judges that we have good chunks of stories, some uh, chapters long. And then there are six judges where we get very little detail of what's going on in their lives. However, it's purposeful, I think. Six plus six happens to be 12, which happens to be, if you've been around this book long enough, a very important number in the scriptures. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, lots of 12s. So I think that that is also purposeful. Um, as well. I want you to take a look, please, at chapter 2 of the book of Judges. Actually, at the end of chapter 1. Sorry, end of chapter 1. Chapter 1 is kind of um, a, 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 a review of what happened in the book of Joshua, a taking of the land, and so it goes through almost every tribe and says, here's the land they took. But you'll notice a phrase, even as you glance down, you might want to underline this. Um, Could not drive out, did not drive out, Manasseh did not drive out. Ephraim did not drive out. Zebulun did not drive out. Asher did not drive out. And as you go through the end of chapter 1, you get this depressing refrain. They didn't drive out the people. And we just read in Deuteronomy what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to drive them out. They were supposed to get rid of these wicked people that would have an undue influence on them and turn them from the Lord their God. And yet we see failure at the end of chapter 1. In chapter 2, we are told why the failure happens. We're told why the failure happens. An angel of the Lord shows up and speaks the words of God, starting at the end of verse 1. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. Key phrase, but you have not obeyed my voice. The reason they could not drive out the peoples is because they had not obeyed God's voice. Did they get cocky? Um, Did they get comfortable? Did they get a little too cozy? We don't know exactly the reasons behind it, but we see these symptoms. And they do not obey the voice of God. In verse 3, God says, here's the consequence. I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. You can look back in the book, uh, books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and see these phrases, thorns, snares. You can see that God had already promised them that this would happen if they did not follow the Lord and did not keep his covenant. Towards the end of, uh, towards the middle of chapter 2, you will see a very key phrase. Judges is, is an, is a, it's an easy book to understand and to delineate because there's key phrases all throughout the book that kind of remind you back to what's been said or key you into a specific thing that's going to happen. So look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Judges 2, 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And that phrase is going to happen again and again and again and again. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You cannot read the book of Judges without going, hmm, I think there's a point. Right? Repetition is key to understanding, key to teaching. 
And the repetition here from the author of Judges is key to us understanding what is going on in the book of Judges. So you'll see that phrase again and again. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In verse 16, we see where the title of the book comes from. 2.16, And the Lord raised up judges. Now when we think judges, I don't know what's in your mind. Maybe you've served on a jury and you have that judge in mind or... Or maybe you're thinking the white powdered wig from the British Isles and thinking that kind of judge. This is an unfortunate transfer from one language to another because the judges in the book of Judges, and except for one case, do not judge in the case of justice or in the case of law or the court. Um, what the judges actually do is what the, what the uh, author says uh, here in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them. They are deliverers. The judges, in every sense, are, little less, saviors. They're raised up by God to deliver the people. And so they are almost entirely military judges, military saviors, military deliverers. Only in the case of Deborah do we see that she um, basically heard disputes and helped um, with that kind of thing, what we think that judges normally do. Uh, but nevertheless, because of tradition and because of uh, Latin and because of tradition that's passed down through Latin, we have still the book called Judges. But when you think Judges, do not think white powdery wig, do not think gavel, think sword, think Spirit of the Lord enabling them to deliver. Okay? So as we get to uh, chapter 3, go ahead and look at verse 1 of chapter 3. This is going to kind of close out the introduction and tell us about the faithlessness of Israel. And even if you went back to the end of chapter 2, you begin to see this, some call it a cycle. Um, it's a, more of a downward spiral. Um, and so a lot of times um, you'll see that uh, there's, in a commentary or in a Bible study, there will be a little cycle of arrows. And it'll kind of repeat what is supposed to happen here in the book of Judges. And what happens is very clear that the people fall away from God. They turn away and they worship other idols. And so what does the Lord do? Well, Judges uses this language that the Lord sells them. So, so it's like Israel is his possession and he's selling them to the nations that surround Israel. Selling them into their hand. And so what, he, what God does is he basically takes away his hand of protection and allows the surrounding nations to come and subjugate the people of Israel. So they, people, the people of Israel turn from God he sends those around to enslave them. In their slavery, they realize they're wrong. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge, a savior, a deliverer. They fight back against the oppressors. They defeat the oppressors. And then there's a phrase that happens throughout the book, and the land had rest. And so this, the cycle, unfortunately, continues to happen. And you see it happen. But actually, as you look really closely, and as you look at all the judges, you see the cycle begin to break down. And so commentators have actually said it's more like a downward spiral. So it is like a cycle, except it's going more like this. Down, 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 and things are getting worse and worse. And by the end of the book, you don't even know if there's anything worth reading after this. Um, praise the Lord, we do have more. Because if it ended with Judges, it would not be a good thing. So in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, um, you begin to see some of the reasoning and you begin to see some of the opponents that surround them. And verse 6 tells you what's wrong. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their 
gods. And so that's the introduction for us to the book of Judges. And then we dive in to the meat of the text. Oops, I forgot that I had the cycle up here. (laughs) Israel abandons Yahweh, serves other gods. Yahweh sells them to the surrounding nations. Israel cries out. Yahweh supplies a savior and the land has rest. So that's the the bare essentials of the cycle of the downward spiral. When we get to chapter 3, verse 7, we begin to see it played out. So it's almost like chapters 1, 2, and 3 kind of set us up uh, hypothetically. They give us a structure. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 7, we actually begin to see the stories play out. We begin to see what does this actually look like. We know what they've done. What does it look like? And so as you see, verse 7, there's the phrase that you'll see throughout the book, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You'll even, if you just scan down, look at verse 12. People of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. You begin to see this throughout the book. Chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is really easy if you're trying to figure out what's going on when there's repetition like that. So we begin to see the reasoning for what's happening. And the first judge that we see is Othniel. And Othniel was actually mentioned in Joshua. He is either Caleb's son or um, Caleb's nephew. We're not exactly sure. But this short story kind of gives us um, the paradigm for what happens. So you see all the elements of the cycle. Verse 7, they forgot the Lord their God. Verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of that king from Mesopotamia. (laughs) Okay? But then, verse 9, the people of Israel cried out, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. So here's Othniel. And verse 10 gives us another phrase that we're on the lookout for throughout Joshua. And that phrase is, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And we'll see that happen with almost every judge. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And it's really important that we see that, because other than that fact, Almost every judge after Othniel, there is no reason for this person to be the savior or the deliverer. If we were to think who might rescue us out of a terrible situation, we think of military leaders, we think of heroes, we think of strong buff men who have a way of leading. And most of these judges just, uh, they, they're more like us. Um, or they're more like what we don't want to be like. Uh, and so it's important that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them because it shows that, wow, if it weren't for the Lord doing this, there's no way we would ever think that this person would be a deliverer. Othniel is actually the only one who uh, seems to be a good man, seems to be a qualified man in that respect. So the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He judged Israel. He went out to war. The Lord gives Kushan Rishathaim into their hand. And then, verse 11, the land had rest 40 years. So there in, in miniature is the downward spiral, is the cycle. And from there on out, we see it played out in different ways. Sometimes it breaks down, and sometimes some of those pieces aren't necessarily there. But that's basically the paradigm for the rest of the book of Judges. And the, the unfortunate thing is it keeps happening. Right? You're like, oh, that's really bad. They should stop doing that. And then they do it again. You're like, ugh. Oh. And they do it again. Ugh. Oh. Do it again. Ugh. And it just follows the same pattern, the same cycle. So we get to the next judge, Ehud. And I'm just going to go fly through these judges. You've heard some of their stories. Ehud happens to be top three favorite stories in the Bible for me. Um, mostly because he stabs a fat man in the belly and the fat covers over the blade. And as a little boy, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Because it's gory and it's bloody and it's a battle story. But, but, believe it or not, there is more in the story than just that. 
I do want to point out briefly um, that Ehud is a Benjaminite in verse 15. Not only that, he's a left-handed man. And that becomes important because we'll see at the end of the book some more left-handed Benjaminites. Apparently it was something in the genetics. But a left-handed man was not just, ooh, a lefty. You know, for those of us that like baseball, he's a southpaw. He pitches from the other side of the mound. That's a good thing to have on your baseball team. Um, it's, it's interesting to have. How many of you are left-handed, by the way? Yes, we love you. Yes, yeah, look at that. See that? That's, that's beautiful. In this time, if you were left-handed, you were seen to be like cursed. You were, something was wrong with you. Perhaps um, someone had laid a curse on your mother while you were in the womb and there's just something horrible. And so they would, they would make sure that they tried to make you a righty, even if you were a lefty. And so that makes Ehud a very unlikely hero. He's a lefty. He's not one that would be honored in society. He's one that would be dishonored because of his disability. And yet the Lord uses Ehud to rescue the people of Israel out of the Moabites' hands. When you get to verse 31, you'll see our first minor judge. Okay, so so far we have Othniel and Ehud, our two major judges. And Shamgar becomes our first minor judge, and he gets one verse. It's a cool verse. He killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. But that's about all we know. Here's a guy, here's his daddy, here's what he did, and he saved Israel. Okay, next. <laughs> and it moves on um, to the next story. Why is it even mentioned? Various opinions and thoughts on that. Um, probably because to maintain the historicity, to say, yeah, there was a guy named Shamgar. But for whatever reason, the Lord and the author that the Lord is using to write this book decided that there was not anything else that needed to be given to us about these details. And so it moves straight on into the next story in chapter 4, which is again an unlikely hero. Deborah um, is a prophetess, and she is the one who actually sits under a palm tree and holds court um, uh, in Israel. She's the only judge that actually we see really judges. Um, But she's a woman, and women do not lead in the military in these days. Um, and so this is an, an odd call for the Lord to call Deborah. In fact, Deborah calls Barak in verse 6. Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor. And then continues to give some of the geographical details. Barak, being the, the brave man he is, says to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Is that how it reads in your Bible? (laughs) Okay, Uh, just making sure. Verse 9, and she said, I will surely go with you. Watch this. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Um, And so Deborah uh, basically tells Barak, okay, I'll come, but this is, I get the, I get the W. If we win, I get the W. I get what, I get the credit. And so Barak does come up and he does lead the men and the Lord provides in an incredible battle. You should read chapter 4. And there's an interesting way that this comes true because Deborah said that the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Well, Sisera, the general, actually flees the battlefield and his people are getting slaughtered. But he runs to a tent uh, of an ally, basically. Uh, But the, the husband is gone and the wife, Yael, or Jael, is there. She gives him some milk, covers him with a blanket, waits till he falls asleep, takes a tent peg, and hammers it through his temple into the ground. So, uh, 
Not your typical, uh, you didn't see that one coming. If you've never read that story, that's, that was a curveball, okay? You've never seen that coming. And Yael um, drives a tent peg into Sisera's head and he lies dead um, in, the, in, the, uh, t- in the tent. And the Lord subdues Jabin, king of Canaan. And then chapter 5 is interesting. It's a long song celebrating what God did in chapter 4. So chapter 4 is the facts. Chapter 5 is the song. Okay, and the song is incredible. Um, the, psalm, the song also begins to show us another theme of the book of Judges, and that is disunity. Because we begin to see Deborah call out the uh, tribes around that did not come to help. So she actually names the tribes. Hey, you guys are good. Thanks for coming. You guys came and helped us. You left your fields. What's wrong with you guys? You guys didn't show up. And so we begin to see the, the first hints of cracks in the unity actually that were shown to us in Joshua 22 with the altercation uh, between the West tribes and the East tribes. So it begins to be, get worse even in this, in this chapter. Okay? Chapter 6 begins uh, a very long section about Gideon and Gideon's son Abimelech. Um, many of us are familiar with Gideon because this is one of the two stories that makes it out of Judges in most children's Bibles. Okay, it's usually Gideon and Samson. If you're going to get any of them, you're going to get those two. Okay, both who are not actually um, men that we would want our sons to be like, but they are the ones that we that make it out of the book. All right, chapter six, Midian is the oppressor this time, along with the Amalekites, and we begin to see again a man who is not the one you want leading your army. The first thing we see of Gideon is he's in a wine press beating out wheat. In case you're wondering, you don't do that in a wine press. You press wine in the wine press. You get grapes. Why has he got his wheat from the field in the wine press? Well, it's because he's hiding. Okay, so he's hiding in the wine press, beating out the wheat. It's not a good place to do that. You want to be on top of a hill so that you can throw the wheat in the air and the chaff can blow away. But because of the Midianites' oppression of the people of Israel, he's in the wine press hiding at night, threshing out the grain. And it is here that... An angel appears to him. And here is his response when the angel says, God's calling you to save your people. Verse 15 of chapter 6. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Lord, I think you showed up at the wrong address. That guy is down the street. Um, This is not the response you want from the supposed deliverer of Israel. And this again is the point. And the, if you didn't get it here, you get it later, right? Um, Gideon gathers a massive army to go fight. And then God says <laughs> the words you never want to hear, Gideon, you have too many men for me to save you. And so he says, hey, is anybody scared? You can go home. And way too many people leave, which is, <laughs> you don't want those guys fighting anyway. And the army is pared down. And then the Lord says, yes, still have too many guys for me to win and get the glory. So he does this weird drinking, kneeling, lapping like a dog, water from the spring. And Gideon ends up with an army of 300, um, which is pared down by tens of thousands. And it's very clear that the Lord is making it crystal clear to his people that if they win, there's only one person they can attribute it to, and that is the Lord. 
the the uh, story of Gideon is is a sad one because at the end, um, Gideon denies the kingship. They want him to be king. He says, "No, the Lord is your king." And then immediately after that, he does something that almost looks word for word like what Aaron did with the golden calf. He said, "I won't be your king, but anybody got any earrings?" And he takes their gold and he makes an ephod, which is basically what a priest would wear, like a vest. Um, or a breastplate went in worship and it becomes a snare to the people of Israel and they begin to worship false gods because of Gideon. Chapter 9 begins the story of Abimelech, which is Gideon's son, which by the way, Abimelech means my father is king, which is an interesting name from uh, coming from a father who said he would not be king to name your son, my father is king. Um, very interesting from Gideon, does not speak well to him. Abimelech tries to become the king of Israel and in fact, Verse 22 of chapter 9 says that he ruled over Israel for three years. But this story ends in a tragic way. As Abimelech gets close to a tower to attack it, a woman throws a millstone over the edge of the tower and it lands on his head. And it's a, it's a crushing blow to the end of that story. And the Lord delivers the Israelites out of the hands of Abimelech. And then we get our minor, our minor judges again. Chapter 10, verse 1, we have a guy named Tola who saves Israel, and we have a man named Jair. And we get a little bit more about these guys, but then it's over. At the end of chapter 10, there's a little break, a little parenthesis, that kind of talks about what God says to his people, and there's actually some sarcasm from God. He says, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And from here on out, the cycle gets worse and the downward spiral begins to plummet because we get to Jephthah. Jephthah is again a a mighty warrior, so he's a good candidate, but his mom was a prostitute and none of his brothers like him because of that very fact. So he's banished. So he's a mighty warrior, but he gets kicked out. And when the oppressors come in, his brothers go and try to find him. (laughs) So you can tell that the family was a little bit dysfunctional and they bring him back, and Jephthah actually delivers the people. But if you're familiar with the story of Jephthah, he vows to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house when he returns from victory. If the Lord will give him victory, he'll make a sacrifice. And what's the first thing that comes out of his house when he returns? His only daughter. Um, just a, I think the ESV says a rash vow. I think that's, that's kind of a light way to say it. It's a tragedy. And it shows, um, it shows the Canaanization of Israel. Israel was supposed to go into Canaan and wipe out the Canaanites. Instead, Israel goes into Canaan and becomes like the Canaanites. And so Jephthah makes a vow that looks very similar to the Canaanite vows that they made in their worship, not like the sacrifices and offerings that the Lord had prescribed for his people. We see in chapter 12 that there's more conflict between the tribes. And at the end of chapter 12, we see our last little group of minor judges, Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon. Chapter 13 gives us to the last judge, which is Samson. Uh, we, you know, I found out this week, frankly, I found out that I thought I was familiar with the story and wasn't as familiar with the story as I thought I was. So I would suggest that this week you go read, go read the whole book of Judges. But if you want to read one story from the book of Judges, read chapters 13 through 16 about Samson. What an astonishing story. Um, it's interesting that Samson's name means son. Okay, Shimshon in Hebrew. His name means son. Delilah's name means dark. Okay, interesting. Uh, there's a city that plays a key role, Bet Shemesh, which is house of the sun. And then when Samson is captured by the Philistines, they put out his eyes so he can no longer see the 
sun. He sees rather darkness. It's just, these connections are incredible as you begin to look through um, the story of Samson. But Samson is just a fool. Um, Samson is uh, uh, high testosterone, um, far, uh, far too in tune with his, um, his urges and his lusts. Uh, we see that he is almost everything that a, child, a, a man from Israel should not be. Again, another uh, thing that you'll see in the story of Samson is that he does what he wants because it's right in his own eyes. Again, another connection, um, his eyes are put out. And earlier on through the book, we've seen that the reason Israel is rebelling against God is because they're doing things that are evil in the Lord's eyes, but right in their own. And so Samson becomes um, basically almost the, the generalization of the whole book of Judges, that he pictures the children of Israel turning from God, so confused, so warped, so messed up, and yet the Lord uses him. Throughout the story of Judges, you see this phrase, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So in a way that's a little bit different than the other judges, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson, and maybe it's all the testosterone in Samson, but but Samson just begins to rip people to shreds and destroy people with his hands. And yet, in the end, he does not do much for the people of Israel except for save them temporarily from the Philistines. Well, the conclusion is anarchy in search of monarchy. And, and by the end of Judges, it's amazing that Israel still exists. Um, in, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books, and in Joshua, we saw that, that Israel was supposed to be distinct. They're supposed to be separate from the people of Canaan. They're supposed to wipe them out. What happens at the end of ju- Judges is it's almost impossible to distinguish between who's Canaanite and who's Israelite anymore. Um, the Israelites have given in to the culture around them. Chapters 17 through 21 tell two stories. And they're not chronologically in order. Chapter 17 actually takes us a flashback to the beginning of the time of Judges. And the last three chapters take us to a story at the end of the time of the Judges. But because we don't have much time, basically what we see is the depths of depravity to which the Israelites have sunk. Um... The, the chapter 19 seems to echo Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, a man uh, comes into town and the men of the city go to rush to the house because they want to have sex with the man. And rightly, the man of the house says, no, don't do this wicked thing, and then offers his virgin daughter and this man's concubine for them to use and abuse all night. The man comes out in the morning, finds his, pro, finds his concubine dead on the doorstep, and then proceeds to chop her into 12 pieces and send one piece of her to every, every tribe. What happens then is the tribes all convene because this thing is so grotesque and so horrible, and then a civil war breaks out and the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin is almost entirely wiped out. At the end of that, the children of Israel go, what have we done? We've almost wiped out a tribe. And it's just sad because it shows the, the depths to which they have sunk. Chapters 17 to 21 are also delineated by a few phrases that are very important. I want you to just look at these with me really quick. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you see that? Very clear. 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 19, verse 1. In those days... When there was no king in Israel. And then chapter 21, at the very end, the last verse of the entire book, 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It is clear at the end of the book that what Israel needs is the promised king to come and rescue them because there's no king and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Wouldn't you know what happens in the book of Ruth, which is next, and First and Second Samuel is the road to King David, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, whose son, later on, we know as the son of David, Jesus Christ. And so the connections that we make from the book of Judges to, Je- to Jesus are not obscured. They're very clear if we begin to read this book for what's in it. What happens at the end of the book, though, might leave us depressed. And so it is good to read the book of Ruth after you read the book of Judges because the Ruth 1.1 says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah hmm, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And it's a happy story. <laughs> it's a good story of God's redemption. And it, it gives us a taste that God was not absent in the book of Judges. He was not gone. Uh, one commentator said this, By the end of Judges, uh, the mission of grace to the world our mission, depends upon the preservation of his people. So against all odds, and certainly against Israel's deserts, the nation survives the dark days of the judges. The true hero in the book is God and God alone. There is no hero in Judges that stands out other than God and God alone. And so we see not only God's faithfulness to punish and to discipline and to curse where he has promised to do so, but we also see incredible mercy by allowing these people to still live, allowing them to be around. And so we see a theme of mercy and grace throughout, that even though these people have turned their back on God in horrible, depraved, sickening, dark ways, that he's not done with these people. And from these very people, one day will come the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. I was reminded of uh, the verses of a hymn, and I'll close with this. Just grace and mercy seem to be so evident in the book of Judges just by the fact that the Israelites are still around. And it says this, Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. And I know lots of you want to sing the refrain now. Verse 3 says this, Wonderful grace of Jesus reaching who? The most defiled. Jesus didn't come to save the wise, the powerful, because we are not wise and powerful. We are the most defiled. By its transforming power, making me God's dear child, purchasing peace in heaven for all eternity, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. And the refrain, I'm not going to sing it, says this, Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all-sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame, O magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise his name. And folks, without Jesus Christ, our story is the story of the book of Judges. We're living the story of the book of Judges all around us. And so there is hope 
God was not done with the Israelites and God is not done with us. He saved us for a purpose, for a mission. He has given us work to do. So let's be about that mission. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for hope. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you that you have not extinguished us for our sin. Rather, you have given us grace upon grace, chance after chance. You are long-suffering. You are patient. And Lord, there will be a day when your patience is ended and you will put all wrongs to right. You will punish those who have not bowed the knee. And so Lord, this morning I pray that anyone in this room who has not bowed their knee, their heart, their soul, their life to King Jesus, that this morning they would see him as glorious, as gracious, as kind, as one who has come to save them from the depths of their sin. The sinless one for the sinner. The righteous one for the unrighteous. That he took our place on Calvary's cross so that we might have eternal life. Lord, I pray that this message would be the one that sends us forth this week into our jobs, into school, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into all the places that we go, that we would remember that but for the grace of God, we are living the story of the book of Judges. So Lord, continue to breathe life into us. We thank you for the, the imagery of baptism this morning that helps remind us of what you've done for us. God, go with us in Jesus' name. Amen.